This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I really love the way the symposium has really come together. You know, we wrote quite independently, but I think that there are many common themes. Um, and I guess one of those is uh, the way in which both critical race theory and TWIL are similar and uh, the different analytical tools and the way they might be used uh, in uh, both contexts. Um, this is really an opportunity for us to um, continue this conversation to sort of put on the record uh, our ideas about how the commonalities between the two areas uh, can be leveraged um, in ways that uh, uh, will uh, bring race uh, in particular to the front. So I guess my first point uh, is um, in my essay, like I just said, I propose to leverage the, the lenses. And let me just say uh, another uh, preliminary thing that I guess my um, uh, my paper really benefited from my going back to a lot of the CRT work that I had read, but also updating myself to what has happened since. So at least for me, one of the big benefits of this uh, gathering uh, is that we are taking each other's work quite seriously in a way that I don't think uh, that we would independently. So this convening is an important uh, 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 part of that process um, of building a 2SCRT global transnational race histories project that creates productive insights from both sides uh, so that CRT scholars can clearly see how imperial history is like racism, a source of transnational racial injustice, and um, we in TWIL can also uh, learn from how CRT scholars uh, use race uh, and center it in their analysis. Um, so that's basically my first point. Um, the second point is uh, that uh, I guess CRT has been in existence a little longer, maybe a decade longer than at least the current version of TWIL. I don't know what version of TWIL, where's Michael, we are at. <laughs> um, uh, but both, I would argue, uh, are marginalized by the mainstream. I'll come back to that point at the end of my remarks. Um, but each, in my view, has slowly uh, become a full-fledged scholarly movement uh, though still regarded with a measure of skepticism by the mainstream of their disciplines. Um, both share a common point of departure, this deeply skeptical and critical of the mainstream position in their respective field, that European modernity for twill and whiteness for CRT are neutral, universal, raceless baselines uh, that blacks for CRT and non-Europeans for twill fall short of. Um, and, you know, the rest is really common ground among us, so I'll go through all that. The third <laughs> preliminary point um, uh, to note, uh, as I alluded to at the beginning, is uh, although there are similarities between CRT and TWIL, they both have different techniques, methods, and approaches. Uh, and um, uh, my next series of illustrations of how they could leverage uh, uh, the different analytical tools will illustrate what I mean by that. Um, the fourth preliminary point I want to make is that uh, we had this conversation in, um, uh, in March. Uh, in the first part of my paper, uh, I show that uh, the TWIL does not really engage in uh, race-minimizing narratives. Um, 
Uh, at least that's my reading. Um, however, I think CRT more readily problematizes how people of color are measured according to whether they correspond to whiteness or are measured by reference to a be benchmark or baseline of whiteness. Whiteness for CRT is an important reference point in accounts of race, racialization, and racial power. Since race has not been the central analytical category for TWIL in the manner in which it has been for CRT, I argue that there is room for learning, sharing, and collaboration. Um, and so in uh, the context of the next series of my remarks, I want to illustrate how we could uh, do that in TWIL, how we could sort of use some of the analytical TWIL tools in CRT um, uh, to borrow and to leverage uh, their power in the context of um, uh, 12 scholarship. So the first is the use of color blindness to unearth racial subordination. Uh, and in this context, um, without going through all the sort of scribblings about what color blindness is, I guess it's common ground here. Um, what I do is that I, I, I go back to an essay that Achiwume wrote about a case uh, in the, uh, from the Southern African Development uh, Tribunal. This is a tribunal established by the Southern African states. Uh, white farmers went to this tribunal to complain that uh, they had been racially discriminated by uh, the government of Zimbabwe, which had... Uh, a constitutional amendment uh, that provided for the redistribution of land uh, from white farmers to, uh, to blacks. Uh, the court agreed with the white farmers. Uh, the over, and this is a long story. Uh, Mugabe was very mad. The late Mugabe was very mad about this. He essentially helped kill that tribunal as a result of this series of decisions, starting with one called the Campbell decision. Now, everybody that wrote about this case prior to Achiume basically agreed with the analysis of the tribunal that because Mugabe had uh, uh, passed this constitutional amendment uh, that authorized the taking of land of white farmers, that, that constituted racial discrimination, both under the applicable law in the Southern African Development Tribunal under the International, Covenant on, the International Convention on Elimination of Racial Discrimination. Um, so in comes Achiume, and she sort of uh, thinks this, this analysis just doesn't sound right. And what Achiume does in an essay that she published uh, in a book a couple of years ago now uh, was that um, she said, I think the problem with this decision is the analysis of uh, whether actually the taking of land uh, from white farmers to black farmers actually constituted racial discrimination. And so she has an anti-subordination analysis that goes to the history of uh, the taking of the land initially from uh, the indigenous population uh, to the white farmers. Uh, uh, in Zimbabwe, I think 80% uh, of the land, uh, the productive land, or a very big percentage is owned by a very tiny minority of white farmers, and this context wasn't provided for in the analysis of that decision. And so in this very interesting anti-subordination analysis, in my view, that also is critical of the very sort of uh, superficial idea of discrimination based on classification between blacks and whites, uh, provides an alternative lens for thinking through the decision of the Southern African Development Tribunal. Now, she does not, I think, support Mugabe's policies. I think that's besides the point. Uh, I think that what she, I think, shows quite powerfully and argues actually the, uh, the uh, 
conventional emission of racial discrimination uh, uh, provides justification for an alternative re-reading of uh, what was happening in the context of uh, Zimbabwe's land redistribution program so that the outcome uh, in the Campbell case is not the only necessary outcome that might have been possible, that a different outcome might have been possible. So um, uh, I thought that was really a great illustration of sort of using uh, tools developed by CRT in a completely different context transnationally to illustrate how uh, you could uh, come to a different conclusion. So the second illustration that I want to discuss uh, is, quite quickly, is uh, intersectionality and multidimensionality. I really shudder to talk about this because the expert is sitting right here beside me, and I try to read a lot of his uh, um, uh, excellent work, and uh, particularly the article in the Harvard Law Review from last year that I found uh, very helpful. Um, I think, though, here uh, I want to start by just mentioning that uh, that this analytical tool has actually been very useful uh, among critical race feminists, Adrian Wing and others uh, that have been doing work in this area, um, you know, drawing... Um, uh, uh, on the multiple intersections of oppression that women are subjected to in the context of uh, places from Africa to Palestine to uh, other places. I, I think she has a wonderful collection of essays in a book from a couple of years ago. Uh, but I, I, I wanted to also mention another uh, series of uh, scholarship, another, another, another sort of set of uh, scholarship um, by, that's in my view influenced by Twill or is Twill like, uh, and this is the scholarship of Ratna Kapoor and uh, scholars like um, uh, Sylvia Tamale uh, in the context of um, um, uh, the work that they have done. So Kapoor, uh, in a, a recent book, Alterity, Human Rights and Freedom in a Fishbowl, showed how racial and cultural assumptions inform LGBT human rights pursuits. The, the context of her, for her discussion is how same-sex marriage is deployed as evidence of primitive, primitiveness or backwardness of non-Western developing countries against the more civilized, evolved approach of Western liberal democracy. She argues that in this West non-West frame, this non-West non-West framing deflects attention away from the way in which uh, Christian evangelicals from the U.S. have been integrally involved in the construction of an anti-gay agenda in African countries such as Uganda, Kenya, or Nigeria. Um, in this framing, international LGBT human rights advocate has associated freedom and liberal values with the West, while African Islamic non-Western societies and their leaders have been cast as retrogressive, barbaric all the time, uh, while looking <coughs> the ways in which homophobia continues to be a feature of Western liberal democracy. So um, I think this work is really very interesting, very important, often marginalized in the discourse of international human rights, but I think very insightful, providing a completely different lens uh, and very heavily uh, sort of influenced by a very interesting intersection of sort of twill analysis with uh, CRT. Uh, another scholar who's also sort of written in the feminist, and of course, here, uh, my paper, by the way, begins by acknowledging the important work already done by uh, 12 feminists, including Vasuki, who is seated here. I'm here sort of jumping because I know that my time is running uh, to sort of use the scholarship of these feminists who, in my view, uh, don't receive as much credit for the work, the very important work they're doing in this space. So Sylvia Tamale is a Ugandan uh, feminist who's come up with a new read on African sexualities. 
Uh, and, and again, like uh, Ratna Kapoor, um, uh, in my view, sort of uh, helps us think uh, in terms of the multiple sexualities uh, in ways uh, that are crucial to her, uh, sort of to disperse the essentialism em embedded in so much sexuality research in developing countries. And I can, you know, sort of um, uh, go into details about that. Um, I, in my paper, uh, um, argue uh, like, multi like in multidimensionality theory, Kapoor and Tamale are exploring the intersecting social systems that are mutually reinforcing, using examples such as Rachel Pope, uh, so and sort of here invoke Athena Mutua's work, who sort of uh, is a reference point in, in, in both their work. Uh, and, um, okay, um, yes, uh, so uh, the last point I wanted to raise about this insights that might arise from either intersectionality or multidimensionality is another debate that we've had in Twitter recently, uh, particularly from scholars like Amar Bhatia, Xavier Sujit, and others that have criticized Twitter scholarship quite rightly uh, for understating the role of indigenous peoples. Uh, and uh, uh, in my contribution, uh, I argue that one response in Twitter that we would have to sort of the missing uh, optic of indigenous peoples is by thinking uh, through the lens of either intersectionality or multidimensionality uh, uh, to show how multiple axes of subordination uh, uh, could come within the purview of the type of work that we are doing. So this lens, this lens is of both intersectionality and, and, uh, uh, and multidimensionality might be important ways of uh, uh, trying to redress some of the gaps in um, the scholarship that's happened uh, in Twill. Um, then with uh, reference to essentialism and anti-essentialism, uh, there's been a, a very interesting debate about this uh, in uh, critical risk theory, just like with intersectionality and multidimensionality. What I really um, uh, uh, found useful as an analytical lens for me in this debate uh, is the debate again within 12 about whether we should use the word uh, the term third world? You know, isn't you know that use of the term third world really essentialist? The third world is a really diverse sort of uh, set of uh, places, locations, epistemic locations, and all that. Um, and um, I guess uh, the central insight in my scribblings uh, for the law review. Uh, is to argue, uh, drawing inspiration on uh, the recent law review article in the Harvard Law Review that Kabado and Harris wrote, is that in some contexts it's okay to use sort of terms uh, such as the third world if they're used uh, as anti-subordination terms in terms of resisting uh, hierarchies uh, like the ones that we in Twill uh, try to resist. Uh, so I found that very useful, and in fact, I then uh, sort of looked back to the early alliances of the third world, which is which are very well covered in the Bandung book, uh, to show how the third world coalition, as a political coalition, was built uh, not on the basis of race, uh, but in spite of race, among many nations in Africa, in Asia, in Latin America, uh, and elsewhere. Um, and uh, and so I thought that this was sort of a very useful analytical lens for sort of thinking through some of the problems. And then finally, my last illustration. Uh, how many minutes do I have left? 
Zero. Okay. All right. I will talk about my last illustration. Let me just say, uh, in the interest of time, this is sort of what, uh, you know, one important way lens that could be useful for purposes of, uh, of CRT in the context of empire. Let me just end with my suggestion. You know, I think reading through the papers, uh, like I said at the beginning, uh, this is the uh, sort of... Uh, uh, beginning of a very interesting conversation among CRT and TWIL. But I think we have to take this to the mainstream. And my very short suggestion is to suggest the law review uh, to have as part of this law review a review of, a, of an important new book in the mainstream on national security by national security scholars, uh, comparative foreign relations law. It has 28, um, how many chapters? 46 chapters. Uh, by Cadiz Bradley. It's called the sort of the Oxford something of comparative law, foreign relations law. It has chapters from all over the world, nothing on race, nothing on identity. Now, I think the back end of this volume should be a review of that book. <laughs> because this conversation is very interesting between us, Twill, and CRT. But I think the next step in this conversation is to take it to the mainstream. And in my view, nothing would be better than, than poking holes at that argument in that book. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be a part of this conversation. I mean, I look out and I see uh, people whose work has certainly shaped my own thinking about race and global power, both uh, domestically and uh, globally. I want to thank uh, Tandei and uh, Asla for conceiving of uh, this event and inviting my participation, and the Law Review editors. I know you do an awful lot of invisible work, so thank you so much. Um, for uh, doing that. I should also uh, thank Tandae, who is a co-author on this particular project, uh, though anything that sounds off, um, attribute it to me. <laughs> so we've titled our paper, Critical Race Theory Meets a Third World Approaches to International Law, or CRT Meets Twelve. And our project broadly articulated is to mark several uh, thematic uh, developments or moments in CRT and TWAIL that track not only continuities of ideas across CRT and TWAIL, but continuities in the historical, political, racial, and disciplinary forces against which those ideas have been articulated. Which is to say, we're interested in both the critical moves that uh, are made in CRT and TWAIL, and interested as well in the resistance, obfuscation, and delegitimation of those moves, particularly in scholarly arenas. So for purposes of simplicity, I will frame international law as the site of concern for 12 scholars and constitutional law as the site of concern for critical race theories. I should note at the outset that our essay is not so much a critique of um, or CRT, one might, for example, reasonably ask the colonization question vis-a-vis -vis CRT, why are problems of empire, problems of imperialism, problems of colonization largely absent from CRT? In a similar vein, one might reasonably ask the question of race vis-a-vis twelve. Why are questions of racial power and racial relations not more saliently a part of the engagements of twelve? These questions invite a CRT intervention into TWAIL 
and a 12 intervention into CRT. Though we think those interventions are long overdue, uh, we further delay them here. Not forever, ever, forever, ever. Um, <laughs> but we do them here. Uh, we do so to draw out synergies between CRT and 12 on the view that mapping the normative, theoretical, and critical spaces where CRT meets might actually open up space for identifying precisely where we think those interventions ought to be performed. So uh, the moments that we have in mind look like this. We start at the very beginning uh, with moment one. We call it uh, foundational racial capitalism. So here, international law on the 12 side and constitutional law on the CRT side operates as regimes of power and violence that implicate racism, capitalism, and colonization. In moment one, there are profound questions under international law to which 12 scholars have attended about which nations belong to the quote-unquote family of nations and therefore deserve sovereignty, and profound questions under constitutional law to which CRT scholars have attended about which peoples belong to the quote-unquote family of man and therefore deserve citizenship. In other words, in moment one, there are social meaning attributions to people and nations that facilitate, legitimize, and entrench global orderings of white supremacy whose entailments have included conquest, expansionism, militarism, economic extraction, slavery, and genocide. As an example of the CRT take on this particular issue, I refer to the case of Dred Scott v. Sanford, formerly an anti-canonical case in US constitutional law. Explicit in that case is the idea that African Americans are, quote unquote, so far inferior that they have no rights which the white man was bound to respect. Now, note that in that formulation, black inferiority is articulated as a pre-existing fact. Black people are so far inferior, rather than the effect of the regime of slavery on which the idea of black inferiority rests. In other words, obscured in the articulation, black people are so far inferior, are the acts of racial violence included but not limited to middle passage through which black people became inferiorized under conditions of racial domination and servitude. Importantly, the framing of black subalternity as the effect of rather than anterior to white supremacy is a central claim in critical race theory. It's part of a broader contention in our work that race is socially constructed through, among other sources of power, law. With respect to Dred Scott specifically, the argument is that in the context of constitutionalizing slavery, its racial dimensions, its economic dimensions, and its violent dimensions, the court's construction of black people as so far inferior positioned African Americans beyond the reach of liberal subjectivity and outside of the quote-unquote family of man. Thus positioned, African Americans became socially unintelligible as citizens and legally ineligible for citizenship. Understood in this way, the white supremacist ordering of slavery produced the very subjugated status of blackness that the regime of slavery purported merely to find. To put this another way still, and to borrow from a term um, or an observation Simone de Beauvoir made about women, Black people were not born the proper subjects of slavery. They were made the proper subjects of slavery. So if it's fair to say that CRT reflects an interrogation of which people belong to the quote-unquote family of man and therefore deserve citizenship, it's also fair to say that TWAIL includes an interrogation of which nations belong to the quote-unquote family of nations and therefore deserve sovereignty. Indeed, even the most cons cons uh, 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 cursory examination of positive jurisprudence 
one sees a range of discourses reflect the idea that non-European nations are not quite nations because their collective identity is not one that international law should recognize as sovereign. And one of the ways we mean to unpack this point is to think about the ways in which post-revolutionary Haiti figured in international discourses. Twelve scholars have also pointed out in a move analogous to the claim that critical race theorists have made that race is socially constructed, that non-European nations did not a priori lack sovereignty. Positive jurisprudence produced that lack via claims about racially inferior people, uncivilized cultures, and dysfunctional and backward governments. In other words, non-European nations were not in some pre-political sense outside of the quote-unquote family of nations. Colonization put them there. And this global positioning wasn't just discursive, it was material in the sense of creating conditions of possibility for legalized domination. Adding all of this up, one might say, if slavery was underwritten by the idea that black people had no rights which the white man was bound to respect. Colonization was underwritten by the idea that non-white nations were so far inferior that they had no claims to sovereignty that white nations were bound to respect. To conclude this discussion of moment one, I want to emphasize a point I made earlier. The racialized determinations about the unfitness of black people under constitutional law for citizenship and the unfitness of non-European nations under various iterations of international law for sovereignty were never made outside of economies of violence, exploitation, and profit maximization. Domestically and globally, those determinations were part of a broader set of racial logics through which labor was extracted, territories confiscated, wars effectuated, body subjugated and capital accumulated. So let's move to moment two, the moment of racial inclusion. So this might be a moment that is less uh, um, uh, distressing or more optimistic. Um, spoiler alert, it really isn't. <laughs> so racial inclusion. Here, uh, 12 scholars focus on the formal inclusion of non-white nations into sovereignty under white-dominated international terms and norms, and CRT scholars focus on the inclusion of non-white people into citizenship under white-dominated domestic terms and norms. For CRT and 12 scholars, then, these acts of inclusion or incorporation do not fundamentally effectuate a reconfiguration of power. Rather, they function as particular technologies through which to maintain, legitimize, and manage the prior hierarchical orderings. Under this formulation, the old regimes of racial inclusion, again, sovereignty and citizenship, are repurposed and carried forward um, as new regimes of inclusion. So Giorgio Agamben, whose work some of you might be, familiar, uh, might be familiar with, describes this kind of process as inclusive exclusions. Our point is that it's precisely because inclusion can be a means of producing uh, racial hierarchy that 12 scholars speak of sovereignty over and against negative sovereignty and critical race theorists speak of first-class citizenship over and against second-class citizenship. Moment three is colorblindness. I won't say uh, much about that because I think you might already appreciate the riff. And move on to moment four is a moment about social responsibility and agency. So in moment four, uh, critical race theorists and Twale scholars engage and repudiate neoliberal claims about social responsibility and agency. Often expressed in the form of rhetorical questions, uh, these claims look something like this. What's wrong with Africa? What's wrong with black people? 
Why are black people always rioting in their own communities? Why are African nations always at war with each other? Why is there so much violence in Africa? Why is there so much violence in black America? Why is Africa so poor and always in need of aid? Why are black people so impoverished and always in need of welfare? Fundamentally, these questions are post-colonial, post-slavery, post-Jim Crow, which is to say racially modern ways of re-articulating black people's fitness for uh, citizenship and re-articulating concerns about non-white nations' fitness for sovereignty. To wit, why can't black people properly manage the citizenship they have been given, in parentheses, by white people? And why can't non-white nations properly manage the sovereignty they have been given, in parentheses, by white nations? Against the background of these particular ideas, it's no wonder that the interventionary table with respect to both civil rights and international law is set largely with claims about aid, about anti-discrimination, about quote-unquote racial preferences, rather than ideas about reparations, redistribution, unjust enrichment, disgorgement, and what, uh, uh, and disgorgement. As uh, Guji Wa Tiano puts it in his classic text, Decolonizing the Mind, Africans' natural and human resources continue to develop Europe and America, but Africa is made to feel grateful for aid. At the same time, this quote-unquote aid and the overall sense that black people and non-white nations are not pulling their citizenship and sovereignty weight fuels domestic and global expressions of white anxiety, white exasperation, and white anger. None of these expressions are fundamentally about what, quote-unquote, these people and, quote-unquote, those nations are doing for themselves. They're more fundamentally about the perceived externalities of their conduct on white nations and white people. The final moment I will describe pertains to uh, scholarship. So in this moment, attempts to describe uh, the story that I've just told raise epistemological legitimacy concerns. Here, both Twale and CRT engender pushback, engender contestations, engender refusals that shore up dominant uh, dip disciplinary uh, foundations against which CRT and Twale become second-class scholarship and negative scholarship, and those of us who write in the field become second-class uh, scholars. As a consequence <coughs> of this positioning, there is tremendous pressure for Twale and CRT to signal and supply intellectual credibility and to assimilate into disciplinary and, dare I say, the civilized conventions of international law and constitutional law. Crucially, then, the epistemological problem CRT and Twale confront is not just that concerns about racial inequality are read out of constitutional law and international law and that efforts to address racial inequality are rendered uh, suspect, it's also that scholarship that challenges that intellectual arrangement is falsifiable as legitimate scholarship and therefore read out of what counts of constitutional law and what counts as international law. So what we're trying to do in this piece is to say, in Twale, over time, a series of important interventions have been made that are actually quite analogous to a serious interventions that are happening at the same time in CRT. We do not, um, by way of mapping these parallel moments, mean to take off the table a critique of both. Indeed, our hope is that the brush clearing that this piece performs will open up space for precisely those kind of interventionary projects. I'll stop there. Thanks. So I've avoided this long enough, I guess. <laughs> um, 
realized I should have gone first because that's impossible to follow. <laughs> and I'm definitely going to run out of time. So what I'm going to propose to do is to read the, the introduction um, of the essay and, then, and hopefully then think through some of the concepts with whatever time I have left. So international law was invented in 1789 when Bentham introduced the term to replace the outmoded law of nations. Since then, much ink has been spilt by international lawyers over, whether the question, over the question of whether international law is in fact law. Surprisingly, far less time has been spent considering how international law is international, or what international actually means. This, after all, was Bentham's actual neologism. Koshkinemi's celebrated history of the discipline describes it as the emergence in the late 19th century amongst white men of a sensibility about matters international, without defining either term. And this is to your point. A, a recent... Uh, sorry... A recent encyclopedia-like collection on concepts for international law, published in 2019, which aims to consider international lawyers, quote, contemporary sensibilities regarding legal concepts, contains no entry for international amongst its 60-odd concepts discussed, nor sensibility, nor race for that matter. Mm. So Samra Esmir has recently sketched out the emergence and morphology of the term international from Bentham's initial coinage as, quote, the legal term that corresponds to the physical conception of the world as the material surface of the earth upon which sovereign states exist in interrelationship with one another, to the gradual shift in the late 19th century whereby international begins to stand in for the world, to claim to fully exhaust it, relegating the world to the background without ever fully dispensing of it, end quote. Writing over a century ago, W.B. Du Bois also recognized the emergence of the socio-political imaginary that, quote, invoked an imperial Eurocentric order of the world and the splendor of European supremacy over the rest of the world. For Du Bois, however, the choice wasn't between the international and the world, but between two worlds, the white world and the darker world, to which most men belong. In this essay, I want to sketch out I want to suggest that with the rise of the international law in late 19th century, the term international came to incorporate both terms of world and global as both an imaginary and as an instituted perspective, both a world that international lawyers live inside and a global perspective they took of and used to take from its others. What is more, this international was a racial imaginary. What is more, this international was a racial imaginary, one that emerged from and reinforces global white supremacy. This white international was consecrated as the de jure international order with the founding of the League of Nations in 1919, when, as Walter Rodney put it, everywhere in the world white people held power in all aspects, political, economic, military, and even cultural. The League of Nations was founded at the hands of Jan Smuts, an architect of apartheid. And like in South Africa, the socio-political system of white supremacy, underpinning the white international, has survived its formal demise with decolonization. The whiteness of this international imaginary, however, has been rendered conceptually invisible, to use Mill's term, to international lawyers, in part because of the dominant conceptualizations of race within both mainstream and critical accounts of the discipline. In order to unwhiten the white international, this essay will begin by rereading existing historical and theoretical accounts of the discipline, arguing that aside from the racial aphasia that characterizes the mainstream, even critical scholarship is prone to either over-particularize or under-historicize the role that race has, and continue, has played and continues to play in international law. Having done so, it will reconsider the rise of international law in the late 19th century, arguing that it was only thinkable and feasible because of the racial imaginary because of this racial imaginary, the white world that Du Bois pointed out, that the men of 1873 assumed and reproduced, one that relied on a particular biological conceptualization of race. This world was not only constituted by whiteness, whiteness was constituted by this world. The essay will then turn to, and this is where I'm definitely going to run out of time, the essay will then turn to the black internationalist fiction of Du Bois and George Shiloh from the period to show how they not only recognized the white international as a socio-political system of global white supremacy, 
um, from its inception, they set out to map its contours in their novels The Dark Princess and The Black International, the story of black genius against the world in 1928 and 1936, respectively. It will end by considering how black internationalist fictions more generally might be read as what Mills calls revisionist ontologies, as alternate clocks and maps of global racial resistance, and as tools for unwhitening both the international and the world. So that's what I'm going to try to do in the essay. What, I, what I'll quickly go through, <laughs> I guess, is, is the three points. So the first, the first is to think through the conceptualization of race within critical scholarship with the idea to showing how it, it over-particularizes or under-historicizes at different times. So an example of the former um, is in the work of Marty Koshkiniemi, where race appears as racism. And generally, um, James Lorimer, the Scottish racist, is often trotted out as the example of what a racist international lawyer looks like. And they also point out that he's Scottish, so as to further particularize him. It's not just an international <laughs> lawyer, but a Scottish one. Um, here, race is understood as individual prejudice and not as a global, white, a global system of white supremacy, a socio-political system based on a racial contract, as Charles Mills points out, that is political, economic, moral, and epistemological and cultural. Or when white people say justice, they mean just us. So epistemologically, the white wall that's constructed by people like James Lorimer is rendered invisible because of the over-particularization of his racism. And in particular, what's lost sight of is how the white international was constituted by the socio-political system, and whites themselves were constituted by that system, including international lawyers. So I think that's a fairly easy, mm -hmm. a fairly easy perhaps, over-particularization. The under-historicization is a little bit different. Under-historicization is perhaps evident in some 12 scholarship where race is read as mere difference, as part of a collection of differences that are at once cultural and economic, and it's conflated in a way that, as Grovegree points out, loses sight of how race is differently different from other forms of post-enlightenment difference. So here race is generally read, or sometimes read alongside two different axes, either read down as culture, um, where it has a number of problems. One problem is that culture then cultural conceptions of race that are more popular in the 1950s and 60s get read back, and, and international's relationship to racism is then understood as ethnocentrism. Right? So this, these are just mere differences. This is just ethnocentrism that doesn't form the, the basis of international law. And the other is to read it economic... Sorry, that's the first problem. The other problem is it's, when you read race as cultural difference, you use sight of its biological construct. So what Fanon said, when race carves out humanity at its ontological joints, as opposed to being mere difference, it's a biologically impossible place to transcend from a zone of non-being. And states like Haiti and Liberia and Ethiopia exist in zones of non-being. So reading it as cultural difference doesn't capture the biological nature of racism at a particular point in time when international emerges. Um, the second is to read it as economic, right, as a proxy for other types of differences that are economic, um, imperialism in particular, uh, when it comes to 12. And in the context of that, race falls out the conversation as a central organizing concept. Right? So as Mill says, you have to hold race at the center of inquiry. Whereas Gordon says, whenever you want to talk about race, everyone wants to talk about something else. So you say, is it race? No, it's class. Was it race? No, it's gender. No, you have to hold on to it as the central organizing concept. And sometimes that gets lost in... Um, the conflation of race and other forms of difference. So to use Stuart Hall's articulation, or Stuart Hall's formulation, in articulating the role of race in international law, you have to chart between reductionism, that, redu that reduces everything to prove one thing, and plurality, that is so mesmerized by everything that it can't prove anything in particular. And in particular, you have to hold on to race as both the structure with a particular historical um, moment in time. And I, I want to focus on 
race, well, I will focus in the probably 10 seconds I have left, um, on how that emerges within the 19th century. So the story of international laws, it's told in its more celebrated recent histories, emerges in the 19th century with, amongst a group of white men in Europe, the men of 1873, as Koshkin calls them, who happen to get together and discover that they are both international and they're white at the same time. Right? And that story is often told through, um, with Lorimer being the racist, and the story is told as, a, as, a, as one of ethnocentrism. But if you track the story more closely, you can see that biological racism is a central part of that story in at least two ways. The first way is that the understanding of international laws in the late 19th century was fueled by a social evolution inspired by, by Spencer, and particularly through the scholarship of Henry Summer Maine, who's often read out of the story, that the very way that international laws founded the discipline was an understanding of a historical evolution um, from so-called... Um, primitive states to progressive states. And it happened to be all the progressive states were the European white states and all the primitive states were the rest of the world. And so that understanding of biological evolution founded the discipline in the sense that it replaced the natural law, which was now unpopular, and also was more um, historically grounded in the positivism, which was abstract. And so the very idea of progress and evolution, which is tied into the ideas of racial biology, was central to the founding of the discipline um, when it comes to its general narrative. In particular, what made the men of 1873, the first generation of modern international lawyers, um, what brought them together, supposedly, was their shared juridical conscience, that they, had a juri- they were the juridical conscience of the civilized world. Now, that juridical conscience was also erased. They were understood to be juridically conscious because they, they came from law-abiding or societies with legal sentiment. They had laws that were particularly different from their others. It was only in construction as against other societies that they could see themselves as juridically conscious as law-abiding states and therefore as um, the men of 1873. So if you, if you lose sight of the, racial, of the biological racism of the period, you lose sight of how central race, not just difference or ethnocentrism, so towards the end of the book, um, Koshkin Yemi starts to talk about not just cultural difference but manners. So he reads down the difference that, that existed between Europe and its others as mere manners. It's really just a question of character. Uh, where you lose sight of very high biological racism made possible that white world in the first place. Um, so how, how, how much time happens? Okay, so, and in particular, so you lose sight of the co-constitution of whiteness and in international law. So at this period in time, two scholars, and many did it in particular, but two scholars in particular who recognized this co-constitution was Du Bois and George Schuyler. So Du Bois, obviously, in his essay, um, Souls of White Folk, but in earlier work as well, and in an essay in particular that's not, not used as much as it might be of the culture of white folk, charts what he calls the rise of the, the religion, of, religion of whiteness, which he charts in an international context. Um, and George Schuyler writes a, a piece in The Crisis in 1938 called The Rise of the Black International. And he, and he talks about the rise of the white international, to which the black international is a response. So these, are not, these two individuals are not unique in their, in their understanding of, how, of the co-constitution of whiteness and internationalists, but they're unique because they both wrote books about it. Right? So Du Bois wrote The Dark Princess in 1928. George Schuyler wrote um, The Rise of sorry, black, Interna- black International in 1936 to 38, or serialized. And I want to argue that if you read these texts with this conceptualization of race as a socio-political imaginary in mind, you can see that in these texts they map the white world. They map the, in ways that we still, don't, we, we still don't see the world that way today as international lawyers. They map the political, the economic, the moral, the cultural, and the epistemological foundations of whiteness that were central to the construction of the international. And they do so in a number of ways. And I'll give, I'll give an example of each. So in Du, in du Bois' The Dark Princess, which, by the way, it's an interesting um, 
international is fiction when there's no international that we recognize. There's no League of Nations, there's no international law, there's none of, none of the things that we think of of the period as being characteristic of international. And many historians today claim Du Bois as one of them, as an internationalist, but Du Bois dreamed of a world without international lawyers, it seems. Um, so in, this, in this, this otherwise devoid of any international infrastructure, in The Dark Princess, Du Bois writes about the struggle against white world supremacy. Right? And he understands white world supremacy in its multidimensional facets, not just this European imperialism, because already he calls it global white, supremacy, global white world supremacy, but in terms of political, it's economic, it's struggle, and it's epistemological basis. There's a, the, of the culture of white folk, which is the, the essay that he publishes in Foreign Affairs at the Journal of Race and Development, which is the forerunner to foreign affairs, um, maps aside in almost identical terms to Charles Mills, the global racial contract as having all these underpinnings, as having all these different dimensions, and Du Bois does it in 1917. And it's that understanding of the white world and its multidimensional facets that he then combats in The Dark Princess. And combats in a way that understands the world, the struggle of the, of the dark world, is not a struggle that's physical against political infrastructure, it's, a, it's against an, an entire ontology. Right? So he says, in fact, and he's writing in 1917, he says that the current war, as terrible as it is, the First World War, is nothing compared to the world to come, the race war that will inevitably come if global white supremacy isn't overcome. And so if you read the novel in the context of his, his broader writing, you can see that he talks about the dark world going free, but the dark world goes free in ways that don't involve statehood or don't involve self-determination, don't involve international law. He has a much bigger vision of international, of what freedom means under the international and beyond the white world. So the other one is, um, is Black International, which is also a novel that kind of picks up. So George Schuyler writes to the voice when he, when he first reads The Dark Princess and says, I'm inspired, I'm going to write a novel. And then it takes him a couple of years to write um, The Black International. And in very specific ways, George Schuyler then builds on Du Bois' analysis and maps specifically what whiteness means as a transnational identity. Right? So the story briefly is a story of the struggle of the black international, a secret organization headquartered in Harlem against white world supremacy. The black international um, what's the word I'm looking for? Sorry. Causes World War II, even though it's, it predicts World War II, causes World War II, wars between the white nations, and manages in the context of wars between the white nations to decolonize Africa violently, to kick all the white people out and to establish a great African republic. Right? And in this story, he, one, of the, one of the ways that he engineers, Charlotte engineers the struggle against the white world, is by creating dissidents within the white American community. So he forms a white supremacist organization <laughs> in America called the White Americans that says to be white is not to be Catholic, not to be Jewish, not to be Protestant. So he, 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 he engenders, he disrupts the white consensus that exists amongst white people across class and all other lines in America. And also he makes sure he does this because he knows that any attempt to decolonize Africa in the 1930s would mean intervention from the white world to save the prestige of the white race. So he understood the transnational dimensions of whiteness as being a, an obstacle to world revolution because there would be intervention to prevent decolonization. And if you think of the American role past World War II, how America quite quickly, um, or the, the imperialism of decolonization it's really, and one more thing, sorry, I'm running out of time. So the second thing he does in a really powerful way is he, he anticipates neocolonialism. So if you, one of the things that the Black International does is it uh, takes over Liberia and uh, a coup d'etat and starts the revolution in Africa from Liberia. And one of the first things he does, he writes to the Firestone Company and says, I accept the loan that you've given me. And then two weeks later, he pays off the loan in full. Right? So amongst the various revolutionary things he does, including killing all the white people, is get rid of sovereign debt. And that tells you something in the 1930s, how he understood what, what freedom would look like beyond. Closing remarks. So w 
what I want to think about towards the end of the text is to think about how there might be other types of revisionist ontologies that we might find in black international fiction. So one is Pauline Hopkins of One Blood, which precedes these, and in fact both Du Bois and Shala are a debt of gratitude to Pauline Hopkins for their main characters and some of their, some of their um, the storylines as well. And the other is the fiction that, that comes afterwards. So the, the African literature that emerges in the 50s and 60s, in particular novels like Wreath for Odoma um, by Peter Abrams, there are internationalist fictions that continue to map the white world in the same sort of multidimensional way and give us a clue to understand how the white international survived and, and outlived its formal demise with decolonization. This has already been such an amazing panel, so rich. Uh, we're just so fortunate to have these contributions. Ours is a little different and takes very seriously um, Tendai's admonition at the outset to co-evolve these projects. So I'm going to give a kind of overview of what we did um, as a project for a chapter that will be, or for an, an essay that will be descriptive in two respects. The first respect is that we try to capture the kinds of conversations that we have been having over the course of the kind of long durée. So there's an attempt to map an intellectual history of the project of thinking about a, a race-centered toil analysis, and then to capture some of the core themes that emerged in our conversations uh, 10 months ago, and then build out of that some an idea or a sort of gesturing towards a research agenda. Now, some of this raises fraught questions. One of them right up front is to frame any of this as a kind of twail 3.0 has a level of presumptuousness that we engage with to some extent um, when we last met to talk and remains a sort of contested what does that mean? How is this kind of um, periodicity or periodization of the project working? And what do we purport to claim? Is Are these distinctive research agendas? How do we situate them with respect to the way the conversation has evolved to date? And so we try to give what is not only descriptive, but merely a sketch of how we would locate that intellectual history, what we think the core concepts are, and where the um, research agenda is moving. And the presentations that James and Devin gave are very much um, resonant with this approach, which is not to suggest uh, deficiency in the one or in the other, but rather thinking about how the conversation between TWAIL and CRT can both enrich the two traditions, but also in some respects begin to converge precisely at the moment when borders are being troubled in ways that makes it more and more difficult to think about a CRT that's anything less than transnational, mm -hmm. and also a TWAIL that fails to attend to the domestic because precisely of not just, because of displacing not just or centering our focus not just on the international but also on the transnational. So that's captured in the way we titled um, this gathering this time. And then the other piece of it is really thinking, because of the great work that's been done by mostly many of the people in this room, about how empire functions and thinking about that in a transnational context in ways that necessarily refracts race. So how is this is a TWAIL 3.0? It's not clear, right? It's obvious that these are issues that were very much alive and present in TWAIL, and we, and we can see it from the outset in the way that we try to do this description, that we're coming at this as international law scholars. So we're coming at it from one side of the debate. And the last time we all met, in many ways, it was a gathering of folks who think in international terms, and it was it, it felt, it might have felt at least, to some of the leading lights of this uh, scholarly tradition to whom we owe such an enormous debt and who remain incredibly productive members of this conversation, like some kind of a um, a story about what's lacking. So not 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 so dissimilar from the framing that that Devin gave. Why why does Twail not engage race in this way and that way? There was a lot of that framing 
And so I think, first of all, there's been a great corrective already in, the, in this panel today to rebalance that question and say, you know, on both sides, there's a way that the grounding of the initial analytic tools required a kind of focus on a particular way of understanding the project that today, I think, for a variety of reasons, that has nothing to do with an indictment of that earlier moment, that without this intellectual history, it's not possible to continue moving. But the research agenda, by virtue of where we are, where the scholarly moment is, where we are in our understanding of how power is operating, uh, with respect to those original agendas, it's no longer possible to think of this other than in transnational terms. So we try to come up with some of the concepts and themes. And here I want to emphasize again the co-evolving. Rather than offering a summary of what we did, with it, which in any case is like a telegraphing of some you know, headings from here and there and, and the ways that we thought through when sitting down and digesting how far had we come in the conversation and identifying some concepts, it's more rather that what we're going to want to do with this um, essay is capture the way that these concepts and themes are, are emerging out of the conversations we're having today, both out of the actual written work that we're engaging with, but also out of the, the literal engagements we have about one another's papers, in order to have a kind of synthetic frame that says something about you know, without, I mean, acknowledging the contestation, but that says something about what it might mean to think 12.3.0. And then we move from, so we have a descriptive front, as I suggest, like that first section. The whole thing is descriptive in its own, in its own respective ways. The beginning part is an attempt to des describe and capture conversations we've been having and also begin to signal where we hope today is going and will have to be fundamentally rewritten and is left in this kind of telegraphic form, in part because it is an open-ended question where today is going to go, and this is going to be an introductory essay to this project, which we are all co-constituting here. But the second part is descriptive in a different way. Um, what we wanted to think of because of our particular situations, that is Tendai and I, and the particular questions that we look at is how is it that these are kept separate? How are they held separate? And I sort of alluded to this a little bit in the earlier... I mean, borders are operating as a particular kind of racial management technology, and then the porousness of sovereignty that has made the counterterrorism experimentation possible in the entire basically the rest as we've characterized it here so far today. But I mean, in, in a set of theaters of conflict, that would have been in some ways inconceivable in, in an earlier um, iteration of, 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 of conversation because of what counterterrorism has made possible. How are these two technologies of racial management being held as separate from one another as opposed to really focusing on their interdependencies and the ways in which they operate together in the same terrain. And so here we decide Libya is the story that we're going to look at, and we have an amazing contribution, as many of you know who have been, already had the pleasure of reading these papers, on Libya that does an extraordinary job. And again, I just want to, I can't, so oh, there they are, um, our authors on Libya. This, this, the mercenarism essay is incredible, and everyone will get a chance to hear about it later today. But the focus here for us was looking at First of all, I mean, so it's, it sort of captures the dynamic that was, again, described in James and Devins's um, presentation so far on the panel of how is this how is the production of race first obscured in a particular way, and then how is it mobilized to legitimate the forms of intervention that we see? So the story tries to capture, again, in a highly descriptive, so there's not an analysis quite there. There are some, there's some signaling of analysis. There are some sentences that say, signal the direction of the argument. But to begin with, we have to start with a, a shared empirical account of what is it that we're witnessing that's happened here. And so in just brief, like episodic sort of uh, snapshots of what that image, that, what that empirical story looks like, it is first 
a set of interventions that are, I mean, that are legitimated. They're, this is the most lawful, conceivable kind of intervention authorized by the Security Council, et cetera, that is undertaken in a humanitarian language and essentially through strict reliance on aerial bombardment flattens the country and its infrastructure to the point that the sustaining of the welfare of the civilian population, the very definition of humanitarianism that mobilizes the intervention is no longer possible. Basically destroy that infrastructural possibility. Then turn around and in a set of further engagements, which we describe as the unmaking of the state, dismantle in one respect or another all of the institutional formations that had pre-existed in, of course, what was understood to be degenerate form uh, under the prior regime, which had to be out because that had been already decreed internationally. So look at how institutions get unmade, how incentives get channeled to un unpack and remove even the institutional frame that exists that survives the infrastructural destruction. And then how does it get reconstructed? What gets recreated in its place as a migration management technology, first and foremost, but then also as a set of counterterrorism uh, prerogatives that redefine the access to the territory for further aerial bombardment, even post in a successful quote unquote intervention that enable the treatment of particular persons as disposable in ways that make extrajudicial killing uh, redescribed in a language, in a sort of sanitized language of international legal conduct, and so on. So the, and then how do those two things come together? How does the pathologizing of Libya as an incubator of threat both produce the counterterrorism frame, legitimate the counterterrorism frame, and then produce the need to police the border in particular ways? And then, of course, how does this intersect with the sort of redeployment or weaponization, if you want, of existing racial scripts in Libya around black Africans, around the Sahara as a, as a passageway to Europe? So that's like the, all you have there is an attempt to describe this arc and to then think about this as a place that would be productive to ask the question, what is the analytic leverage gained when we center race in a, in a fundamentally twill scholarly project about uh, a set of interventions uh, that were fully um, interpolated through international law that have produced the context that we're trying to describe. So this does not do any of the kind of analytic work we've just seen, this, these just masterful, incredible presentations we've had. Instead, it tries to do, and it will be in the most cursory way possible, but just tries to say, to the extent that we can describe these conversations and capture some of the ideas of what this research agenda would look like, offer just, if you want, a, an extraordinarily short case study and what, that, what the application of some of these concepts might mean and signal the ways that would enable us to see past not just the silos of, say, a CRT or TWAIL, let alone of like constitutional law, international, I mean, all the kinds of things we're already trying to explode, but also some of the ways that we keep our own intellectual borders in place, if you want, by focusing on migration independent of counterterrorism, by thinking of national security separate from the ways in which um, policing of borders takes place and so on. So I've already spoken too long because we're both speaking, and Tendai has some yeah, brilliant um, substance to share now that I've given you the descriptive shell. I'm, I'm making the mistake again of going after Asla's so-called descriptive shell, which is anything but a descriptive shell. I'm just going to say that out loud. And also, I have zero chill, so I have to say also that it is the most exciting thing for me to be on the panel with four people who have 
you know, transformed the way I understand what I'm trying to do as a scholar. And that, I think, is the biggest gift that you can be given as an academic. And James, Devon, Asa, you all have had the unfortunate privilege of being there since the very beginning. And think about some of the drafts that I've made you all read and want to hide. Christopher, you are new, but you are not being let off the hook. And it's just um, really, really, really exciting to, to be with you all here and then with you all here in this in this conversation. And what I wanted to try and add to what Asla has um, spoken about is just some of the ways in which I understand the insights that are made possible at a number of different intersections, including at the intersection of the work that we do. I focus on migration, Asla studies, you know, international, uh, the humanitarian intervention and other areas that are implicated um, in this case study. And then also thinking about the TWAIL CRT um, intersection as a productive one as well. And so as Asla mentioned, our piece is exploring, among other things, how different bodies of international law function and thrive as systems of racial governance. Where racial governance is referring to the different ways in which Race creates a means of ordering bodies and territories on a hierarchy according to which imperial exploitation um, can occur. And I think this way of thinking about race has explicitly been a project of CRT and of TWAIL in, in different ways, even though, as many have said on this panel, a lot remains to be said. And so here with, we're thinking of race as a technology of empire, and Chantal Thomas's piece, which you'll hear about, picks up this and, and develops and expands on, on the sense of, of race as a technology of empire, and we're thinking about this um, in this piece. And so if one half of the legal story we're telling is focusing on racialized intervention, including through the counterterrorism prism, the other half relates to the nature of migration um, governance. And this, uh, this story as well, the story of migration governance, can't be told without um, a race and empire analysis, um, even while the prevailing international law and discourse make such an analysis actually fairly difficult. Um, and, and what I'm trying to say here is that the nature of international legal doctrine and the way that it is interpreted and applied is that this context, the context of Libya, can at once sustain conditions under which migration control can function as racial governance, but at the same time it can function as racial governance without ever being termed or confronted as such, right? So it's making it possible, but then also making it impossible to be confronted or even um, seen as what it is. And I want to give you um, an example that I think plays this out, um, again, from the, from the context of Libya. So in July 2019, there were airstrikes that were attributed to the, LN, um, the LNA, which is a group that has been identified as um, trying to take over Libya from the government of national unit, uh, na the, the, na the national government that was installed by the NATO allies that Asla describes in our um, draft. And so this strike hit a building complex in Libya that included the Tajura Detention Center which held about 616 um, migrants and refugees of different nationalities, Algerian, uh, Chadian, Bangladeshi, Moroccans, and others. And 53 people were killed, 53 of these migrants and refugees were killed during um, this airstrike. And there were two separate strikes. 
eyewitness, I mean, eyewitnesses report that after the first strike, uh, migrants and refugees who were detained in this facility were attempting to escape. And not only were they prevented from escaping by the um, Libyan authorities who uh, run the detention facility, but some eyewitnesses reported that um, an official at the detention center actually shot dead um, an, a couple or a number of people who were attempting to escape during the strike. The second strike um, occurred, and, and the officials deny the shooting um, story, but there were some eyewitnesses who said that this took place. And so you have 53 migrants and refugees being killed in this, during this airstrike, in, held in this um, casserole uh, facility. And the UN published a report that I was reading in advance of this presentation that documents the airstrikes, gives a factual analysis of what happens, and then also lays out a legal analysis that I think speaks to the kind of, the, the value of the kind of work we're hoping can happen through the symposium volume and then also through the larger project as well. So the report um, has an analysis of international humanitarian law, international human rights law, and attributes responsibility for what took place to the government of um, Libya. And um, part of our essay describes how the NATO intervention is made possible by a challenging of the nature of Libyan uh, sovereignty, right? So Libya's sovereignty is porous enough to justify humanitarian intervention. But then when you come to the migration context, what you see is the fortification of Libyan sovereignty, but only with respect to its borders and only insofar as Libya can serve as the extraterritorial location of Europe's borders on um, African uh, territory, right? So sovereignty at once allows both of those things to do, to, to happen. And in the international legal analysis in this um, UN report, you essentially see sovereignty function to identify those who are responsible for this, uh, for the deaths at this facility, as the Libyan national um, government. Now, what of that? What that analysis elides is not only the intervention that produces the kind of the kind of Libya where that sort of an airstrike is to, is taking place, but it also obscures what it means to be a migrant or a refugee in Libya, how migrants and refugees get to be in Libya, and how they stay in Libya. And European intervention is central to that story. And so Europe, the EU, is funding um, Europe, uh, immigration detention centers like the one that was the subject of this airstrike. So EU dollars are going into the maintenance of that structure. The EU is training Libyan immigration detention center guards and also uh, facilitating and staffing, not staffing, but paying for the staffing of migrant interdiction that prevents migrants from getting um, to Europe. And so Libyan coast guards will intercept African um, migrants and keep them in these immigration detention um, facilities. And there's actually reports of migrants who are rescued by these coast guards actually being sold into slavery. And so some of you may have seen in 2017 the footage of African migrants who are being sold in um, slave markets. When that footage went uh, viral, again, it was the traffickers and the smugglers who were being blamed for, for um, those sales. The, the same groups that are associated with the trafficking and the smuggling are the same groups that are now the coast guard that is being funded um, by the EU. So you literally have the same bodies doing work on both sides of the um, aisle, and sovereignty in international law functions in this dual way that um, makes it um, possible. So to just speak very briefly about what 
taking race seriously as an analytic can do here, one of the things that I think it can do is it can really track how it is that sovereignty can play this dual function, um, we think. Because one of the ways that this arrangement can sustain itself and one of the ways in which the bodies are allocated into the different places and one of the ways in which the territories that are considered penetrable are identified is definitely um, through race, right? So the social meaning of the morphology and ancestry of black Africans in, in the Libyan context is doing a huge amount of work. And I had the... Um, I, I had the experience of, of a visual manifestation of this in, in traveling through Morocco. I haven't, had, I haven't been able to, to get to Libya and, and see this playing itself out there. But in Morocco, as you move from south to north, north is going to be the border with Europe, you visually can see the number of black sub-Saharan Africans in public spaces reduce. And it's not because sub-Saharan Africans are not moving north, it's because racial profiling as you move north intensifies and means that being in a market in the north of Morocco as a black person could very well result in your um, apprehension and being driven south where you are then released and where it's fine, um, it's fine to be. And so your body is essentially functioning as the border. That is the site of enforcement of exclusion in a way that is elided by an analysis that can't take seriously race and empire at the same um, time. And so uh, this, by the way, is not yet fully fleshed out in the SN. This is what, this is what Asa was uh, alluding to. We are hoping that this case study, the Libya one, can be an example that I think maps a lot of the work that is happening in deeper and more sophisticated ways in the essays that you're going to be hearing about in the chapters that are um, coming up, and then also that is mapped in the overviews that are provided um, by some of the other papers. And so we are really, really excited about, about where this might go. And I'm ending with five minutes to spare and feeling really proud. I think I won the panel by ending early. <laughs> Today wins. Well, Today I mean, wins. Might. You might. I don't know. Michael might win if he ends earlier than me. So I feel like I'm the portly Arab uncle over Turkish coffee who takes the long drag on the cigarette and says, let me tell you what I think about all of this. <laughs> so I've been tasked to comment on all these fantastic papers. Um, so at the outset, just let me say that Tendai and Asla's paper provides some historical background to Twail as a movement, as a very particular movement. And as we heard, they outline a common research agenda uh, on concepts uh, for TWAIL and CRT. Uh, James and Devin, what we heard from them is how TWAIL can, prov uh, um, can provide people with particular analytical tools and that TWAIL can benefit from tools from CRT. So things like understanding and challenging laws, colorblindness, the limits of formal inclusion, intersectionality, and colorblind intersectionality, multidimensionality, so we've, we've heard all of this. And then Christopher and Daryl's paper, which I, I had the privilege of reading Daryl's draft, what they do is they provide a way to imagine a fundamentally different future by treating international law as a genre amongst other genres. What I want to do is start with how I understand Twell and how I situate myself in Twell and the intellectual uh, history and go from there into the papers. So in the late 1950s, the uh, uh, very famous international lawyer, uh, George Abisab, uh, so this is 1957, 1958, he identifies a particular tension 
that I think uh, would define third world lawyers' relationship with international law for 60, 70 years after that. So there's one, one there's, it's, a, it's a tension between two dynamics. So on one hand, at home, when the international, the third world international jurist is at home within their post-colonial state, the third, this third world lawyer will find themselves having to respond to a widely held belief that most people, based on most people's experience uh, in their post-colonial state, which is, well, international law has always been the tool of the oppressor. And if you buy into international law, you're going to bring with it old and new forms of imperialism. And so the international lawyer would say, well, no, there's actually some potential. Let's try and reimagine international law and try and un uh, unleash international law's um, anti-imperial potential. So with this in mind, there's a long tradition of third world jurists working within international institutions. Special rapporteur. <laughs> so it's a long tradition of working within the system, knowing its flaws, knowing its history. Now, part of what comes with that dynamic is a heavy reliance on sovereignty as a shield against foreign intervention. Um, so this approach connects with national liberation movements, with indigenous people activism, and anti-racist solidarity. So to bring it into the United States, since we're talking about CRT, so you can think about how, for example, the American Indian movement of the early 1970s, what they do is they go to the UN and they establish relationships with third world leaders there, leading to eventually the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Or you can think about the Black Panther Party finding refuge in Algeria and establishing an embassy in Algiers. So that's one dynamic. Well, then we all leave. Right? I think Twail is actually a story of exiles and misfits, yeah. truly, truly speaking. So we all leave, or exiled in your own home country, or however. So outside of the post-colonial state, the international jurist now has to spend their time and energy fighting international law's imperial tendencies. And this co dynamic continues today. So in Tendai and Asla's paper, we see how international lawyers have to navigate international law's hypocrisy. So there's the finding by the Security Council that Libya has violated people's human rights, leading to widespread bombing by NATO. So from a human rights violation equals being bombed. Right? So the problem with living with this tension and this hypocrisy for 60 years is that many international jurists have become cynical, if they're lucky, or they become apologists for post-colonial state violence. There is something, and it, you know, it was humorous, but there's something to be said that James had to say, well, wait, wait, Tendai is not justifying Mugabe. She's not on his side. But there was, so there's that shared anti-imperialism with Mugabe. But by God, we can't support Mugabe or Qaddafi or Saddam Hussein or Bashar al-Assad. Right? But they're anti-imperialists. Right? So you take international law's hypocrisy and you combine it with post-colonial cynicism with the state. And this has created a politics of fear. Governments tell their people, post-colonial governments will tell their people, do not disrupt the status quo or you will unleash imperial forces. Better I repress you. Better you look in the mirror and the oppressor looks like you than the white man coming to oppress you uh, and enslaving you or wiping you out. So what I've seen in this, in this past year in Lebanon, so that's where my mind tends to go, is that people have taken to the street in a rare moment of fearlessness in Chile, in Hong Kong. We can go on and on and on. And this is a fearlessness not out of bravery or out of a position of hopefulness, God forbid, 
This is a fearlessness based on desperation. There is no choice but to be fearless today. So to my mind, the political agenda for 12 becomes how do we continue fighting international law's imperial tendencies and fighting the post-colonial state? So now looking at new alliances and friendships between 12 and indigenous scholars, touching upon something James mentioned, Twail, us and Twail, we're still learning, and we still have a lot to learn from struggles against settler colonial states. Very different, but a lot to learn. So the question I ask myself is: Well, if indigenous struggles against the settler, uh, if the indigenous struggle is against the settler colonial state in all its varieties, and if they're successful, they will fundamentally transform the juridical and political order. What stake do black people have in that fight in settler colonies? I'm hoping CRT can then illuminate and unravel the settler colonial state and, along with Twail, highlight the transnational dynamics of imperialism. We see this in the newest articulation of black Palestinian solidarity in this movement between people in the United States and Palestine. And this is a plug. I have no personal stake in this. But the new, from summer 2019, Journal of Palestine Studies. Black Palestinian Transnational Solidarity, co-edited by Noura Erekat and Mark Lamont Hill. It's fantastic. It's historical, it's um, cultural, it's legal, it's political, it's all those things. What happened in Ferguson, people took to the streets when they were marching in Ferguson. Black activists with the Palestinian kafir around their neck, <coughs> chanting. I, I mean, this brings me to tears. And I, I'm, From Ferguson to Palestine, occupation is a crime. I didn't understand how this happened. What did they, how did this connect? What this teach taught me is that global white, supremacy, uh, global white supremacy is partly structured through networks of security apparatuses. Angela Davis's most recent work has highlighted this. There is a very particular exchange of knowledge, personnel, and technology among security companies and settler gover governments and post-colonial governments. You can track people and ideas and money between U.S., Israel, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and the corporations serving them, uh, and to see the techniques and how they're learning from each other. Within the United States, Arabs have gone from being white to brown, and every day uh, we're getting closer to becoming black. What's, been, uh, what's clear by all these papers is that race is a central and defining feature of international law. Race is not, as Daryl tells us, a domestic or national problem, nor is it simply an object of international law to be governed. Daryl and Devin in their papers also remind us that we need to be better to understand law's role in the process of racialization. So to, to go to Tendaya and Asla's account of Libya, it highlights, I think, two, I like the binaries today, why not, two dynamics. So one, we can think of states differently, not as having an exterior border that we should protect to, to build to protect the interior, Rather, what we're seeing is states treat everywhere as a borderland. And the line Tendai said, bodies can function as a border. That means that the borderland is always moving, emerging, re-emerging, and then disappearing. So they just keep moving the border guards. Whether we're talking militarized police in black communities like Ferguson, or the EU enlisting Libyan governments to detain migrants. So fighting for control of the streets in places like Lebanon, Chile, Hong Kong, is like fighting a war on a border, where the border keeps moving. Um, and it's not, again, just building walls and barriers and holding ground. The tactical question becomes, who controls the movement of the border itself? 
So there's been a, there's a great Reddit exchange between protesters in Hong Kong and protesters in Lebanon sharing tips on how to deal with tear gas. And the tip that stayed with me from Hong Kong is they said, remember, keep moving. Keep moving. You con congregate, you do what you're going to do, and you disappear and you recongregate, decentralize. It's an awareness that you can try and create your own borders and your own, uh, your own uh, front to fight over. What we, so that's one dynamic. Another dynamic that we heard and, and that, that are in the papers is state actors often take their domestic fantasies and turn them into imperial experiments. Uh, we see this in the Libyan account, and then Dina's work on the U.S. occupation of Iraq is similar. The Americans, when they went to Iraq, it was the neoliberal fantasy that they wished they could only do at home in the United States. And then there's a third dynamic, which we didn't hear so much today, but I want to highlight the work done by black scholars and activists, is tracking then how those imperial adventures are redefining state governance within those so-called domestic borders. So not just the militarization of police in the United States, but it's, hard not, uh, it's not hard to see the legal similarities between the management of Indian reservations in the United States and U.S. military bases abroad. Quickly now, if you're a, a non-native person on a reservation, uh, U.S. criminal law doesn't apply to you, nor does native criminal law apply to you, leading to a heightened uh, degree of violence against women, murder and disappearance of women on reservations. The same is with the military bases. So the United States have managed to ensure that their soldiers and citizens enjoy extraterritorial immunity uh, uh, against local criminal prosecution. So you see, again, this is very gendered violence that happens the most popular, uh, the most, uh, case comes to my mind is the Philippines as an example. So it's not just a metaphor when U.S. soldiers call parts of Afghanistan Indian country. So here's now my intervention, the long drag, long, long drag on the cigarette, right? Um, uh, we can see, uh, for example, we, from James, we can see, for example, how the civilizing discourse can happen through race, through gender, through a lot of ways, so common ways through pinkwashing. Oh, look, Israel has a pride parade. Aren't they civilized? Those swarthy Arabs, they hate the homosexuals. They're uncivilized. So you can see it in, th in those terms. But I think Christopher does a, a, this most explicitly when he asks, well, what makes the category of race different than other ways of generating difference in oppression? So James is right to turn to feminist and queer theory, highlighting the importance of multidimensional perspectives, and a lot more work needs to be done there, but let's not lose track of what makes racial projects unique. Tendai and Asla in their paper, and we'll probably hear this today and in other papers, they use a common phrase that we all use in Twail, that we're all trying to decenter a Eurocentric account of law. But let's take their descriptive project quite seriously and understand that Europe is in Libya and that the Arab and African world is in France. You know who I cheer for in the World Cup, right? That's the Bandung team is France. So the, new, the notion of Eurocentricity starts to lose some purchase. What I like is how Christopher focused on the white international and the black international. Whiteness is a transnational phenomenon. It's not phenotypical, but it's a way of organizing power and nature and history in a very particular way of claiming superiority. There are white people in Lebanon. Ask a Sri Lankan domestic worker. There are white people in China. So this concept of whiteness, I think we have to be sharper in, in how we're tracking it and following it, what we mean by it. And the same with the black international. So here I'll end in my remaining two minutes of maybe a more politicized way of describing the common project. 
So if we're looking uh, to find a common ground amongst these different traditions and different movements, let's also recognize the internal t tensions and dynamics within each movement and be specific with what aspects we want to join together. For example, there are strands in CRT, in black political theory, in indigenous activism, and third worldism, which can be ethno-nationalist, or some version of Afro-pessimism, an, an, an expectation of an inevitable racial war or racial divide. This perspective can often apologize for violent expressions of masculinity. In the United States, on the Supreme Court, the example is Clarence Thomas. He is, to some degree, a black nationalist who is also a pessimist and a misogynist. On the other side, we have to look out for opportunists. My nightmare is finding myself more of a native informant than an anti-imperial fighter. You sometimes slip into that by mistake. Who benefits from your work? Right? So what type of black international are we looking for? This reminds me of something uh, uh, that a Nigerian US science fiction writer uh, said. Her name is uh, Ndendi uh, Okorafor. And she said she makes a distinction between Afrofuturism and African science fiction. To her, Afrofuturism is very much a way of imagining the world from the experience of black people in the United States. Her work, she explains, is African science fiction in that it tries to imagine what African countries and peoples could be like in the future. CRT is an American movement, and, it, it, and not because of people in CRT want this to happen, but what happens is it can, because it's still American, it can occupy a lot of space when it leaves the borders. CRT can serve empire at times if we're not careful. And here's where I'll properly end now. So there's two, two, two scholars we haven't really heard, from, or heard about, and they're not really in people's references, but I think it's a good, their work is a good place to ground us. And this is the work of Robert Knox on his piece in the London Review of International Law called Stretching uh, Marxism, and Brenda Bandar's book, also a plug. Lovely book, fantastic book, called uh, Colonial Lives of Property. And you can see in their work, heavily, heavily influenced by the work of Cheryl Harris. Right? CRT is at the core of this work, but you can also see the influence of Cedric Robinson and his notion of racial capitalism. We heard that today. And Stuart Hall and his uh, notion of racial regimes. And in fact, if Daryl is here and if he was going to watch the video or next time I see him, what I'll tell him is he's actually in direct conversation with Rob Knox. They are looking at similar questions and they're covering the same literature. And they both highlight something which is fascinating is the history of slavery was not always black history. All different types of people have been enslaved, but there's a very particular legal moment when slavery becomes encoded in legal regime, regimes that are defining blackness. That connection of slavery and blackness is a very particular moment. Daryl and Rob touch upon it briefly, and I would encourage them to expand that more. So what's not clear to me uh, from the reading of the papers is what's, what exactly is at stake? And this is where I turn to, to Ben Bandar's book. She brings it all back to property, and I would broaden it back to land. If we're trying to look for a particular political common ground, there's a pun there, isn't there? Huh? <laughs> Maybe we can think about how, uh, uh, um, uh, and I hope you see how I'm drawing from a lot of people's work in this room. What I wanted, so I keep thinking about how is it that international law made the Palestinian struggle one against a settler colony, thereby turning Palestinians into an indigenous community, whereas Lebanon, where we have historic, we're all Ottomans at some point, we eat the same, we hang, we joke in the same way, the same manners, as Kuskinemi might say, right? 
Whereas in Lebanon, the current revolution is against the state making us post-colonial. How did that distinction happen? So here's, here's my thinking. Law is always a story of denigration, dispossession, but also deliverance. International law deems you to be indigenous when, it, when a state is trying to stake a claim in your land, turning your territory into property. States use international law to devalue your land. They could do this by turning you invisible, terra nullius, or they make you irrelevant, making you a ward of the state. States then treat you like a noble savage. They purport to be doing you a favor by granting you education and housing, all while expecting you to be grateful for the culture they give you, no matter what price you had to pay. Indigenous peoples, however, have also used international law to fight back, not ceding discursive or literal ground. The other side, the parallel track. International law deems you to be black, brown, yellow, and all shades in between when you are estranged from your own land. States use international law to evaluate the worth of your labor through categories such as slave, migrant worker, permanent resident, native-born, citizen, illegal alien, and refugee. States then treat you like a brute threat, purport to be doing you a favor by letting you enter their borders and offering you a job, all while you're expected to be grateful for the work they give you, no matter what price you had to pay. And here, building on Tendai's work, people of color have also used international law to fight back and treat international migration as a matter of redistributive justice and not charity. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.